Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. When the Taliban ruled Afghanistan from 1996 to 2000, women were publicly brutalized and such an extreme form of government. We will not falter and we will not fail. Peace and freedom will prevail. Taliban forces entered the heart of the Afghan capital, Kabul, today the culmination of a rapid advance and retaking of control almost exactly two decades after they were ousted from This is a story that starts with a pair of trainers, a prized pair, a few sizes too big for the kid wearing them. It's not Air Force, but it's just one of those Pakistani-made, it's called service trainers. It was a bit, you know, a number or two bigger for my feet. And he stopped me and driving one of my, my dad's car. And he actually ordered me to take off my shoes. And I did. A Taliban fighter sitting high in a Russian UAZ 4x4 takes the trainers from this 12-year-old kid. And then called me to jump in. It was late afternoon. And then I'm thinking, this guy has taken my shoes and he's going to give me a ride back home. But they don't take him home. In the Hazarajat, the central highlands of Afghanistan, it's 1999. And this 12-year-old boy is kidnapped. It's almost the evening prayer calls from the mosque. It's getting dark. And I'm kind of starting to get worried and pleading with this man to say, okay, at least let me go home because it's getting late. You know, my stepmother and my, you know, the family will get worried. The boy's father is a commander in the local militia. The soldiers take him to a building that his dad's been using to plot the resistance against the Taliban. Only his dad isn't there. Instead, it's been turned into a torture chamber. It was a concrete building which my father used as a base. They'd taken over that. They were using that as, as their base. So they didn't let me go off the car. They drove me to that base. And then it, it, it didn't feel real. 
you know, opened one of the doors and pushed me in. And this is just a little dark room. And I see my uncle sitting there. And I, you know, I was, I was crying. I was, I was I'm, I'm just a child. There was another man lying on his side at the other end of the room and he was groaning of pain. And I don't know what's really going on. So it just does not feel real. It's a day that starts with a pair of stolen trainers and ends in the torture of a 12-year-old boy. I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of a boy, now a man, called Rahala Yakobi, or Ro. It's a story, really, of a daring escape that starts in a village in central Afghanistan and ends, sort of, in Wolverhampton. But of course, this isn't just the story of a little boy's escape. Really, it's the story of war in Afghanistan. What you are looking at right now is Taliban fighters inside the presidential palace. Uh, this is uh, these pictures exclusive on Al Jazeera. Uh, and I need to be honest with you here. I've written and rewritten this introduction so many times in the last week, and the same goes for the rest of this podcast. Because over one weekend, faster than almost anyone, everyone, the White House, number 10, journalists, military experts, even people in Kabul thought they might. The story changed. They arrived at four in the morning, 3,000 Taliban in SUVs, and began burning down houses and executing civilians. And so it's become so much more urgent, a story that's unfolding before our very eyes about a cycle. The Taliban have not been this strong since the U.S. drove them out 20 years ago. Which, 25 years later, is starting all over again. The pace of the assaults has gone from dizzying to petrifying. We do want to start here with the fast-moving and for many really horrifying events on the ground in Afghanistan where the Taliban have now reached the capital city of Kabul. American and Rose's story, well, it begins again. It's what thousands of children could now expect as the Taliban takes control once again. By all accounts, the Soviet takeover was meticulously planned and skillfully executed. Roe was born in the village of Anjuri to Riza Yakobi, a commander in the local militia who had fought the Soviets in the early 1980s. Caught most of them by surprise. Maybe it shouldn't have, because at least in hindsight, there were plenty of indications of what the Soviets were contemplating. By the time that Roe was born in 1987, he was a child of war. Even his name, Rahala, was chosen by his father's fellow commanders a nod of thanks to the Iranian Ayatollah who'd supported their fight against the communists. So we belong to the Hazara community, the community that I came from. And what I remember was, you know, the, the Hazara region, uh, as it's known, is very mountainous, rugged and poor, and of course, deprived. According to legend, the Hazara descended from Genghis Khan's Mongol hordes that swept all before them in their conquest of Eurasia. Their distinctively Asian appearance sets them apart from other Afghans. The Soviets fought in Afghanistan for a long, hard nine years, supporting the communist forces while the Americans armed the Mujahideen, the Islamists, in a proxy fight in the ideological stalemate of East versus West. And in the Hazarajat, Rose's early life was lived in the bright light 
of his father's bravery on the battlefield. And, you know, from as far back as I remember, my, my dad, given what he was and what he was doing, were always at the centre of things going on in the area. So my time would really be spent being the son of the commander who'd become known as being brave and whose parents had always worried about him never returning home and he would come home in the middle of the night and then disappear for another two or three weeks and come back. And then and it was always that, him being present and not being present at the same time. And as I grew up, you know, I realized that he had a position and I became more and more interested in you know sitting along with you know, in, in the corner of the room where he was holding his meetings and I kind of beginning to understand the complexities of, you know, structures within which they were working from a very young age. I mean, Two years after Roe was born, the Soviets withdrew their forces, 1989. They were hardly going to fund a foreign war when at home the USSR was collapsing. But already another conflict was brewing. The Islamist groups, once armed by the Americans, were beginning to hunt for power. And by the time that Roe was seven years old, in 1995, a new force had arrived, the Taliban. They brought with them to this exhausted population the promise of peace. The people of Kandahar shed few tears for the end of the previous anarchy. But now questions are being asked and left unanswered about who the Taliban are and what type of society they wish to create. But of course, as we know, the opposite became true. Executions were commonplace, public amputations, blockades of food and supplies. Women were stripped of their rights. They were barred from working outside their homes. They couldn't leave without a male escort. Girls were no longer allowed to go to school. The Taliban is pretty unreconstructed, if you like, organisation. And during its uh, five-year attempt at running the country, here, there was nothing. Women weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed outside their homes without the company of male relatives and in full hijab. Girls were not allowed to go to school. Um, this is Lynn O'Donnell, Afghanistan bureau chief for Agence France Press and the Associated Press between 2009 and 2017. And on a Wi-Fi connection that miraculously held up, she talked to me from Kabul. Men had to grow beards. Uh, science was just ignored, didn't exist. It was a pretty tough place. Music wasn't allowed, even kite flying, which is a traditional Afghan pastime, wasn't permitted. The Taliban made their capital down in um, Kandahar in the south, and they had only two countries that recognised them diplomatically, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. An important thing to know about Roe and his family is that they're Hazaras. And the Hazaras were, in Afghanistan's patchwork population of ethnicities and tribes, a target. The Hazara people are Shia, and the Taliban, like most Afghans, are Sunni. But Afghan Islam is informed by a history of Buddhism, as the Buddhists in Bamiyan would attest, and it's fairly moderate. The Taliban are extreme. And the Shia Hazaras are also Asiatic people. They're not European extraction, if you like. They look uh, Chinese, Mongolian, and they account for about 15% of the population. They were very, very badly treated under the Taliban. There are documented massacres. But the discrimination against the Hazaras didn't start 
with the Taliban. It goes back at least 100 years. As the Taliban began to encroach on the Hazarajat in the late 1990s, Reza, Roe's father, was a key figure in the resistance. And Roe was this tiny spectator in a war in which his dad, his hero, was a central character. And as a young sort of seven, eight, nine-year-old, what did you know of the Taliban? How did they loom in your, in your mind, in your imagination? One of the things that actually my, you know, we were very, very keen on, at least given my father's position, was we had a, a Panasonic radio cassette, one of those old ones. When my father was at home, all we did, at least on the top of ours, we used to listen to BBC Walsall's Persian uh, service uh, broadcast from London. So we used to listen to the news, you know, all the time. And, and also the rest of the time we listened to music, which, you know, many people in the village didn't do. And the other thing that registered for me was when the Taliban captured Kabul. You know, we were having our breakfast, bread and black tea. So my dad's listening to radio, uh, to the BBC radio. They have committed serious incursions inside the Afghan territory and they have enabled the Taliban to move towards the capital. Kabul has fallen. That is when they captured Kabul and then killed, you know, the last communist uh, president of Afgan- Afghanistan, Dr. Najibullah, hanged his, you know, his, his corpse in a, in a city square. So from very young age, as I began to piece together what's really going on around me, the Taliban became synonymous with brutality and, you know, savagery, really. In the years after 1996, more than a million Afghans fled to Pakistan. And up in the mountains, Rose family couldn't escape the brutality that was now spreading around the country. He lost a baby brother to malnutrition. His father was away for long stretches of time and he was left with his mother, who suffered from epilepsy. He carried the shame of her condition as villagers around him muttered that she was cursed or that she was bewitched. Thanks to the Hazara commitment to education and to a secular education in particular, he learned how to read and write, unlike a lot of children across the rest of the country. All the time he watched and listened from the corners of rooms, reading his father's communiques by candlelight. And, and so what happened, I think it would be in 1999 when you were 12? Yeah, 1998, where after two and you know plus years of complete blockade on the Azarajat. The Taliban, you know, like we see today, for example, they 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 managed a blistering attack in advance on northern Afghanistan, slowly, you know, went down towards the capital of the Azar region, Bamiyan, the ancient city. Within days, fifteen hundred years of history was reduced to rubble. The Buddhas and thousands of other Afghan relics are now being obliterated by the Taliban's latest war. So when the Bamiyan fell, uh, the rest of the Azarajah crumbled one after another. You know, one of the things the Taliban did was, you know, when they captured Mazar-Sharif, I think in one day they killed up to 10,000 Hazaras. Every step of the way they advanced towards the Hazara region, they again, you know, repeated the massacres. And one of the, the most notorious thing the Taliban did when they captured Mazar-Sharif was they put a slogan out to say that if you're a Tajik, go to Tajikistan. If you're an Uzbek, go to Uzbekistan. If you're a Hazara, 
go to the graveyard. You know, the, the, one of their other warnings were that, you know, if you're a Hazara, you either convert to real Islam, which means Sunni Islam, or if you don't leave the country, and if you don't do that, we'll kill you. So, you know, when the Hazara region was kind of, you know, were, were, were falling one after another, uh, and the Taliban began sending messages out from the Pashtun area to say, okay, what are what is your position? What do you want to do? Are you going to fight? Or are you going to surrender? The Taliban was gaining power and confidence, and another force was becoming prominent too. Injured in two bomb blasts today, which exploded just minutes and 450 miles apart. Those explosions set to go off at the U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania and Nairobi, Kenya, were clearly a part of someone's war against the United States. And one of the men thought to be behind the attacks Osama bin Laden, the leader of a 10-year-old Islamist group called Al-Qaeda, the base. They'd taken shelter in Afghanistan and developed a particular brutal brand of extremism allied with the Taliban. The American retribution was swift. The United States retaliates for the bombing of its embassies. Cruise missiles are launched against... Within two weeks, President Bill Clinton had ordered strikes on an Al-Qaeda base in the southeast. Our mission was clear to strike at the network of radical groups affiliated with and funded by Osama bin Laden, perhaps the preeminent organizer and financier of international terrorism in the world today. In the Hazarajat, the Taliban were gaining ground and Rose's father was cornered. It looked like his militia really had only two options left, surrender or a kamikaze mission, to die fighting for the Hazaras. And I later heard from my father that all of them were killed, you know, within a few weeks of leaving our area. And they actually did the kamikaze. So, yeah, so, you know, this is how it really ended for my father. His dad didn't go on a suicide mission. Instead, he negotiated to hand over control to the Taliban. He gave over weapons and facilitated a retreat. I think it was just that, you know, in collaboration with the local elders, my father and the group that they belonged to, negotiated a, a peaceful handover of the district to the Taliban so they could come in. And then my father and his men, you know, would leave, which was, you know, probably very painful for my father to do. Of course, the Taliban's hope was they'd be able to catch my father and, you know, all other commanders who were in that region. But they were prepared for it. So when the district was handed over to the Taliban, I remember that I was a child and going to this bazaar and people lined up. The Taliban arrives and goes into the central mosque. And that is where the handover was complete. The night after that, my father collects, I think it was his elder brother who kind of came to him and said, look, you got to leave now. So you were at home when this happened? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, you know, he, he just grabbed my hand and gave me a kiss and that's when off he went. <laughs> it was more difficult for him, given but it was it was I could actually from a very young age, it was very difficult for him to live like that. And, you know, he was he was a warrior and you know he'd seen his his comrades fall. And you know that's how I I even from that very young age of 11 then, I could feel how difficult it was for him. You can hear 
can't you? The emotion in Ro's voice, how hard it is for him to talk about that moment. Ro's father disappeared, and by now Taliban soldiers were targeting the militia and their families that were left behind. One by one, Ro's uncles started to go missing. By July 1999, Ro was the oldest male in the family left untouched at 12 years old. It was a hot day, July, that they came after me as well. It was a school midterm. It was our last day of summer holidays. And one of my uncles was missing, one of the eldest uncles. And his wife said to me, OK, go and find out where your uncle is. His uncle hadn't been seen for three days. At the bazaar, Roe comes across the Taliban soldier, the soldier who takes his trainers and, with them, I suppose you could say, the last crumbs of his childhood. Which is how we find ourselves back in that concrete room. You know, I was, I was crying, I'm just a child, and it got dark. But I think somebody opened the door and threw a few pieces of bread for us to eat. My uncle, he's kind of, in a sense, he plays the patriarch role in the family and he's you know the person who everybody goes to and he was always known as the disciplinary man of the family you know he would discipline us and we were really scared of him and he was not known to be one of the smiling faces of the family i didn't expect he just embraced me so naturally and so quickly and began talking to me to say you know i've been here for the last three days and they've brought you in to bring shame to the family to show to the rest of the people that we've taken the youngest or the oldest or every member of the family, we've got no limit. And I'm thinking back now, he turned into a philosopher-esque personality where, you know, we're having this dry bread and he's trying to console me saying that we should be proud to be where we were. And the fact that among all these people in the village and the district, we are the ones they feel being threatened from is something that we should always remain proud of. And I suppose that he'd been thinking over the last three days of being tortured really, really deeply about, and that he turned into that person who was really kind and who was trying to kiss me on the cheek and console me to say, these things, you know, they will not harm you. They're just brought you here to put pressure on me. But know this, that there'll be a tomorrow and we will always be proud and that we are, uh, you know, that we are proud people and they're trying to destroy that very pride in us. And then they took my, my uncle away and I could hear him being tortured and screaming. And then he came back about an hour later. But he didn't say a thing. Uh, and I just touched his head and it was wet with blood and and he didn't say a thing for the rest of the night. When morning broke, the prisoners were called out of their cells and Roe saw his uncle in the daylight for the first time. He was limping. It was really bright outside, he remembers. And then Roe hears his own name called. There was this Taliban commander, I suppose he was their commander, he was sitting cross-legged. His turban's on his side, he was preparing his breakfast, and he asked me to go and sit next to him. So we're sitting cross-legged next to each other, and I'm 
shivering with fear. And his first question was, so, boy, you don't know where your father is? He said, no, he didn't say anything when he left. And he said, your uncle says he doesn't know either. I said, you know, he probably doesn't. And then he said, do you know of any, you know, any weapons stored around your house? And I said, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I was not involved in any of these things. I've been going to my school. And then uh, he took the teapot off. And I don't know what actually moved in his head. You know, he was so kind of, you know, during his question, he was so gentle. And I'm just sitting here next to him. And he, he took a, the, the spoon and put it on the fire. And then, you know, within a minute or two, when the, the, the spoon was hot, he used his turban to grab teaspoon. And before I realized, he started, you know, tapping on my side with this, you know, heated teaspoon. I just froze. I, I you know, I, I felt cold. I didn't know what really was happening to me. And any of that, I just screamed. And, and then the two men, my uncle and the other man, from their cells began shouting and cursing, said, you let that little boy go. The Taliban have some messages from the village elders that you should let the child go. And then he just, you know, the sun was out and he let me go. And I, I just ran. And I've never been back since. I've never seen the village again. As soon as he made it home, his family knew they had to send him away. It was arranged almost immediately. They arranged through family friends for me to get out on the back of motorbikes. The last time I actually glimpsed the village, I was on the back of a motorbike. I had one of my uncles living in Gaumser district in Helmand. So they thought it'd be safe for me to take refuge to my uncle um, in at the heartland of the Taliban, where, you know, in Helmand. And so I had a cousin with me. Within a day, uh, we were in Kandahar, <laughs> the capital of the Taliban. In the Islamic uh, society, nothing is allowed, uh, such as television, such as, uh, such as uh, types. And uh, I had to sleep rough for a night in a scrapyard, just about, I think, probably less than 100 metres away from the Taliban leaders' compound. But this, if you can believe it, was only the beginning. My uncle had no money. He only had 1,000 Pakistani rupee, which could take us from the Garamsir to, uh, to Lashkar, the capital of the province. And then he decided, OK, let me give you one kilogram of opium. You know, you take it and sell it in, in Lashkar. It will give you enough money, make you enough money, and then use the money to get you to Iran. And then we agreed. So I took the thousand rupee, the kilogram opium. We go to Lashkar. You know, it was easy to find a buyer. And then this family relative, my dad's cousin, who says, no, don't sell it here. We'll take it to Kandahar. It will worth more money in Kandahar. So we go to Kandahar. He again says, don't worry, we'll sell it in the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. It will worth more money. So the morning after we arrive in Kandahar, we are on our way to the Pakistan-Afghanistan border town called Spin Baldak, where the Taliban have recently massacred uh, a lot of people. 
And on the way, the way between the city of Kandahar, you pass the Kandahar airport. And also what you pass is behind the Kandahar airport, Al-Qaeda had a, a base there where Osama bin Laden was based there. So we're in this Toyota Corolla, you know, jam-packed, and I'm holding my bag of opium. And we've just passed Kandahar airport. The car comes into a stop. And then we see a convoy of SUVs and Toyota pickups whizzing past us. And then this man sitting at the front, by then I'm kind of semi-fluent in Pashto, the Pashtun language. And then he says, the man says, Osama wa, in Pashto, he says, he was Osama. So we had actually come face to face with Bin Laden's convoy. And he was on his way from his base to Kandahar to probably meet the Taliban leader. And I'm thinking now, isn't this really mad? Did, did I really part ways with Bin Laden holding a bag of opium in the back of a car? It's just sort of unbelievable, isn't it? And, and at that time, as a 12-year-old, were you sort of thinking that? Were you thinking, is this my life? No, because it was just, it was just normal life and there was nothing surprising about it. You're in Afghanistan. And then we, read, we, we get to this border town. And I remember because of the Hazaras, because of our persecution, the abuse that we were suffering, we were actually a commodity. No other community had to be smuggled into Pakistan and back but the Hazaras. And now I'm telling this to my dad's cousin, we have to sell the opium here because I need the money to get into Pakistan. I said, no, don't sell it here. We'll sell it to Pakistan. Carry it with you to Pakistan and then we'll sell it with more money. And I'm just a, a, a naive 12-year-old boy who does not realize what he's actually up to. And then as soon as we get smuggled into you know, the Pakistani border town, he comes to me and says, from now until we get to the destination, you don't know me and I don't know you. So we get into this city coach and then he sits right at the front and put me right at the back. And I don't realize why. And I'm holding this bag of opium in my hand inside a you know, another bag, so it doesn't show. And forgive my naivety here, but what does it mean to hold a bag of opium? What, what form is it? Is it, the, is it the exact thing you take off with poppies? A paste. A kilogram of opium paste. 100% pure. You don't know how much it would work in street value here now. Probably I'd be a millionaire, I don't know. And, you know, I sit at the back of this car and, you know, have this bag. And opium, when it's heated up a bit, it's, it, it smells really strong. And and this old Pashtun man comes and sits next to me. I'm holding this bag. I've got a turban on. And then he says, in Pashto, he says, what have you got? You know, really kind of amazed and says, opium. And he just pricks my ear and says, do you know what you're getting yourself into? And I said, no. And then he says, do you know that you'll have your head chopped off for this? I said, no. And he, he asked me to take my turban off. So I take my turban off and he wrapped the bag with my turban and takes it. And I'm just thinking about how selfless of that man. And he just grabbed the bag from me and put it on his lap and says, from now on until we get to our destination, this bag belongs to me. And then we go and, and arrive at our destination in the city. And he looks up at me and says, 
do you have anybody who will look after you? And there's a family relative who is in this very car. And you said, be careful. If you don't know anyone here, I am prepared to look after you until we get somebody. I've got relatives in the city. I'm going to see my son in the city. I can take you with me. But he was a Pashtun. I couldn't trust the Pashtun. You know, the Taliban were a Pashtun. You know, in Kandahar City, me and my cousin were being beaten up for being Hazaras. And, and, and then he said, okay, he gave me the bag and said, you know, make sure you've got somebody who will look after you. And you know what? The next morning, that family relative took the opium away and I never saw him again. And you never got the money? No. And I was just left destitute. And it was Christmas Day 2000. Roe remembered the date exactly because on Christmas Eve, when he arrived in Quetta, Pakistan, he heard on the radio that an Air India plane had been hijacked. The plane that was finally forced to land in Kandahar was carrying 11 crew members. There was this man selling bananas. I'd never seen bananas before. So I, I gave him some money. I think some of that money I gave him and took one banana. So I had my first banana. It was Christmas Day, 2000. And then the rest of the money I had, there was another man sitting cross-legged and, you know, it was a fortune teller. So I tell him, you know, I'm so desperate to see what's going to happen to me. So I say, okay, how much is it for you to tell my fortune? And he says, I don't know, how much money have you got? I said, this much. I said, give me that money, I'll tell you fortune. So I, I give him my hand and he reads my thumb and says, you'll grow rich, you'll have two wives, each will give you two girls. And it hasn't materialized yet. So at least, you know, I, I neither have two wives nor two girls and I'm not rich. <laughs> but maybe it was something to cling on to at that particularly dark moment in your, in your journey. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. He made it across the border and into Iran, and there he settled for a while. He was working, aged 13 now, as a child labourer. He had no idea where his dad was, if he was dead or alive. You're looking at the World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know. So we, we just finished work, and I'm sent to buy some bread from the shop. 
And I go into the shop and there was a small TV screen behind the counter and I see oh God, so buildings on fire right and, you know, two tall towers are falling and smoke and fire. And the TV is on mute, so I buy my food and everything that I need without actually giving a thought what really was going on there. And maybe it's a, you know, a movie or something or, you know, whatever is going on there. And so I come bring our bread home for dinner and we had a handheld radio where we always kind of listened and kept in touch. And when I went home from seeing that pictures and listening to the radio that evening, thinking, oh my God, what's really happened? And then fingers were immediately being pointed at Bin Laden. In this small shop in an Iranian village, Rose sees what the whole world sees, the deadliest terror attack on US soil in history. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. This is not a battle between the United States of America and terrorism, but between the free and democratic world and terrorism. It's a moment that everyone over a certain age can no doubt remember. I got home from school and watched it on rolling news on my TV, safe with my family. For Roe, what was unfolding had an entirely different meaning, a vivid connection to his life and the forces that were shaping it. Within a month of the attack, coalition forces retaliated. President George W. Bush signed into law a joint resolution authorizing the use of force against those who were responsible for attacking the United States. Immediately following the first attack, I implemented our government's emergency response plans. It was at nighttime, but I was getting from work or to work on the street where this Iranian man, uh, you know, old man driving his tractor stopped and shouted at me saying, Afghan boy, America's attacked Afghanistan, and the Taliban are being obliterated. But it involved a huge strike force, the United States and Britain firing 50 Tomahawk crews. And those were the words, probably the sweetest words I've ever heard anybody utter to me. Roe was ecstatic. And I fell to my knees. I'm just this child, you know. I, I, you know, the, the burden of that pain was so heavy, just I fell to my knees and thinking, I can't believe this. Progress was swift. Good evening, everyone. The Taliban have left the Afghan capital, Kabul. October turned to November. And the Bush administration says the war is far from The Taliban who ruled this region with an iron fist overnight seems to have just melted away. To December. The Taliban gave up their last major stronghold. In one decisive week, the Taliban was beaten back. Coalition forces and the Northern Alliance took city after city. Talakan, Bamiyan, Herat, Kabul, and finally Jalalabad. Britain, under a Labour government with Tony Blair as Prime Minister, hailed it as a victory, a total vindication of the strategy we've worked out from the beginning, he said. We will not stop until our mission is complete. We will not flinch from doing what is necessary to complete it. We will not fail. And there's something remarkable, isn't there, in listening to this defining period in Britain and America's foreign wars through the experiences of this 12-year-old. 
And what happened is that after 9-11, we were working in this village at a construction site in the birthplace of Ayatollah Rafsanjani, who was one of the founders of the Iranian revolution. And I called this man who was the contact point for you know people from our village. And what we used to do is occasionally call that man to say, have has anybody left a message for me? You know, have I received a letter or something from home? And, you know, if I had a message to be relayed to somebody who was on his way home, so I could do that. And if I had money to be sent, I would send it to him and he would hold it for me. So it was that kind of, you know, the go-to man. And then it was after 9-11, I gave that man a call and his nephew, who was the same age as me from school, and he said, oh, we've had a call from your father and you've, you've not called us for two weeks and we had a call i think he said i think it's your father and he's left a number for you to call back so he gave me this number zero zero four four i'm thinking what fresh hell is this what number is this and he gave me the number the next morning i go to this telephone shop and ask them to connect me to this number so it was you know the idea that my dad was alive I couldn't sleep for the night. So just to, just to think that he's got a telephone number for me to contact him, it was just surreal. Three years after he'd last seen him with a final kiss on the cheek, Roe discovered that his dad was alive. His dad had made it through Turkey, Italy and through Calais. He'd claimed political asylum in England and he was now living in, of all places, Wolverhampton in the Midlands, 7,000 kilometres from where he'd last been seen. Afghans have suffered 25 years of war, yet they have also experienced nearly five years of hope for a better future. Once the Taliban were forced out in 2001, the situation for Afghan citizens began to improve. The coalition focus shifted. It became a reconstruction project, an experiment in nation building. By helping to build an Afghanistan that is free from this evil and is a better place in which to live, we are working in the best traditions of George Marshall. And the Hazaras, persecuted for more than a century, seized the opportunities that were now open to them. What happened after 2001 was development, and development is for everybody. Roads, hospitals, education. So it's not that they had the most to gain, they certainly took huge advantage of the opportunities that they were given. They're an immensely well-educated people. They uh, excel. The person who got the highest score on the university entrance exams last year was a Hazara girl. That's an amazing achievement. I would say that they certainly are amongst those who have the most to lose if the Taliban come back. After reaching his dad on the phone, Roe was now in touch with his family once again, and it was agreed that he would travel back to Quetta in Pakistan, and from there he would wait for a family reunion visa so that he could join his dad. And with everything going on, you've got to remember that Roe was a teenager, and at this moment in his story he did what all teenagers do. He fell in love. He met a girl called Tahira at a local language school. He got her a ring and he got his dad to agree to his condition that he wasn't coming to the UK unless he could get engaged. And all around him, the geopolitical tectonic plates, as it were, were shifting. 
our fellow citizens. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people. As the world watched Iraq, the Taliban regrouped and a resurgence began. Taliban gunmen started to cross the porous border from Pakistan into southern Afghanistan. But the British and the Americans, they had made a commitment. They would stay and help the Afghans. They had promised to help reconstruct the country as the security situation deteriorated all over again. On what was an empty wilderness in southern Afghanistan's vast desert is the British military headquarters built in 2006 to tackle a growing Taliban insurgency. Over 3,000 British troops were sent to help with those efforts, and they operated out of Camp Bastion, a specially built base in the desert near Helmand's provincial capital, Lashkagar. These places had been milestones in Roe's own escape, and now they were the heartlands of this never-ending war. The Taliban was playing a long game, and though things were moving for Roe and he was closer than ever to escaping, the situation around him was deteriorating. It was in November 2004 that we eventually got reunited again. When we received our visas in Pakistan, I went to the travel agency and asked them, I want to go to Manchester. Why Manchester, you might ask? Well, of course, it's simple. David Beckham. Roe had read about him and listened to stories about him on the radio when he was in Iran and Pakistan. Okay, I love the city of Manchester. I love Manchester United. So I have, you know, I have a very valid reason. To, to support Manchester United. You know, nobody can call me a glory hunter. And so although my father had moved to Wolverhampton working at a, at, at a factory, uh, what you know, I did was make sure that we got a ticket, plane ticket, landing in Manchester. And tell me about that moment. I find it so incredibly moving, the idea of you going into a travel agent and saying, I want to go to Manchester. Just, yeah, amazing. Yeah, and it was just, there are, there are things that you... The words fail to, you know, to to convey really, especially if, if English isn't your first language. We were all in tears as soon as you know the plane landed over Manchester, and thinking all the grey and the the red brick houses lined up together, and all I was trying to do was, you know, figure out where Old Trafford was. We land, and you know, I see him kind of far cry from what he was. He's very thin, frail-looking man lost a lot of weight and he's grayer than he was hands are rough he'd worked seven months without a day off seven days a week uh, to make sure that we had enough money to to be able to buy our plane tickets it would be natural to think that this was rose happy ending that he'd made it to safety and back to his beloved dad but of course that's naive He knew no English. He was scarred physically and psychologically. He'd left loved ones behind. With his father, he began to lead quite a strange double life, one I think he's probably still leading. He's intimately and emotionally tied to what's happening in Afghanistan, and yet he's building a life for himself far away. From Wolverhampton, he watched as America's political landscape changed. But tonight, because of what we did on this day, in this election, at this defining moment, change has come to America. 
the new president and his vice president, Joe Biden, announced a change in approach to the war. Afghanistan is not lost, but for several years it has moved backwards. There's no imminent threat of the government being overthrown, but the Taliban has gained momentum. Al-Qaeda has not re-emerged in Afghanistan in the same numbers as before 9-11, but they retain their safe havens along the border. And our forces lack the full support they need to effectively train and partner with Afghan security forces and better secure the population. Barack Obama approved a long-standing request for more troops, 30,000 more. In short, the status quo is not sustainable. But he also set out a time frame, the beginning of the end, if that wasn't too optimistic. After 18 months, he said troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. And there were changes in Britain too. David Cameron now Good afternoon, preceded everybody. by members of at his shadow cabinet. general election, the Conservative Party gained more seats than at any election for the last 80 years. That year, 2010, a transition plan was put in place, a handover to Afghan forces, despite really widespread concern that they just weren't ready yet. And a year later, a decisive victory. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. In this time in Wolverhampton, Roe had saved enough money to travel back to Pakistan to marry Tahira. And he'd started to learn English too, mostly from listening to the radio, Radio 4, 5 Live. It was, as you can hear, a pretty good education. His English is, I'd say, perfect now. But you can hear that hint of the Midlands in his accent, mixed with the richness of the Persian and Pashto from his mother tongue. But there was not a lot of lightness to his life. The heavy burden, which is, you know, really painful to me, the heavy burden of carrying that load of pain with me from Afghanistan. And also, you know, getting added onto it by everything that's going on, you know, whether it's losing a family friend or whether having a friend injured in an attack, the load's just bigger, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the West was growing tired of the war. Peace talks gave way to more peace talks. The Taliban continued to pressure Afghan troops. The US and the UK had invested billions. And then came Joe Biden's victory in 2020. President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. And an announcement. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. It's time for American troops to come home. He picked up on a plan that was instigated 10 years before. He forcibly stamped his views on a policy he had long debated but never controlled, the New York Times wrote. He declared an end to the nation's longest war, but in doing so, he also ignored warnings from his military advisers. They said that the departure could allow a resurgence of the very same terror threats that had drawn hundreds of thousands of troops there in the first place two decades ago. And the brutal truth is, it's done exactly that, with 
breathtaking and dizzying speed. In the weeks after that announcement, Taliban attacks began to ramp up once again. Attacks that followed old targets and old prejudices. In May, there was an attack on a girls' school. Dozens of schoolgirls killed in a blast as they were leaving class on Saturday afternoon in Kabul. About 100 people were killed and it was very specifically targeted at young Hazara girls as they were coming out of school. Exactly a year earlier, there was a, a, a complex attack, as they're called, against the maternity ward of a hospital in the same neighbourhood. Gunmen went in with automatic weapons and shot women in labour and newborn babies in cribs. It doesn't really get much worse than that. And these sort of attacks really instill a feeling amongst Hazara people that there is a genocidal policy against them. The Taliban seized key rural areas. In many places, they were met with very little resistance. The Afghan forces, trained and supported for so long, just weren't ready. We begin with breaking news from Afghanistan, where the northern city of Kunduz has fallen into Taliban hands after Afghan forces failed to hold the strategically important city. And yet still, the withdrawal continued. Just a few weeks ago, Ro's uncle, a man called Rahim, was captured by the Taliban. And he was tortured to death. His eyes were gouged out and his limbs were crushed. There are days that you think you feel guilty about surviving, you know, that you think that you've run out and skates, despite all the, you know, the pain and the scars that you continue to carry. I felt an immense amount of shame as well. Uh, to think I'm sitting at the comfort of my home, being able to at least get out of the house and never feel about, you know, anything happened to my children, anything happened to my wife, anything happened to myself. From Wolverhampton, this son of a 20-year war, Roe watched as the Taliban once again regained control. A slow-moving horror that had, in those final days, seemed to click into fast-forward. As it stands this hour, Taliban fighters surround the capital, Kabul. Events have sent shockwaves around the world, not least in the United uh, States. There, were, there was chaos in, in the last about 24 hours of people trying to get on planes, trying to get out. They essentially overwhelmed the airport security. Thousands of people flooding onto the tarmac. Clamouring to try to get onto planes, there are stories of... When I spoke to Lynn just over a week ago, she spoke of Kabul as a city that was bursting at the seams. And as the Taliban advanced and it was clear that they were going to take the city, Lynn was one of the lucky people who was able to leave before the chaos really started at the airport and she made it to Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Everything moved with such unbelievable speed that, that yes. when spoke yes. on Thursday, you said, I'm sitting in a city that is bursting at the seams. And, you know, under two days later, the thing that everyone was worried about happened faster than I think anyone really realised. So just talk me through how the city changed over those two days and, and what's happened. There had been a, an audio message circulating uh, amongst some people that uh, there was going to be a prison riot. There's a big prison, big, very nasty prison in Kabul called Pulichaki. And in other cities, the Taliban have staged prison breakouts because most of the people in the prison are Taliban fighters and this is how they uh, scare the city and boost their numbers. 
And I had sent it to some friends and said, how genuine do you think this is? And one said it's fake and one said this is going to happen within 72 hours and it happened within 24 hours. And I was busy on Saturday doing, you know, working and final packing and stuff. And a friend of mine who worked in the government at a very high level came over and walked in the door with a phone glued to his ear and pacing and walking in circles and said to me when he finally got off the phone, everybody's gone. He'd come from the the palace and he said, everybody's gone. Well, Lynn, thank you. It just felt so, so important to somehow, because we had this conversation four days ago that now feels just, it, it just feels like another a world away from where we are. But it is now. It yeah. is. They were drinking illegal alcohol and having a laugh and, you know, just, just being ourselves four days ago and the whole world has changed and we saw it coming and now it's here. Now we have to deal with it. And there is everywhere now talk of an immense betrayal of a shameful abandonment of the Afghans who had helped coalition forces, criticism of the speed of the withdrawal. This is Johnny Mercer, a British former defence minister and a former soldier who did three tours in Afghanistan. The thing they always had over us was that they had the time, right? So they always knew that the West's commitment to Afghanistan would not be enduring. And that was something we could never sort of get over, really. US troops were in Germany until very recently. 60 years later, these things take time. Invading a country, a lot of politicians come along and they think, this is my war, here's the time to make a name for myself. Whereas these things are proper 50, 60 year projects. So maybe, you know, maybe we are going too soon, I don't know. But uh, that's a fair debate to have. I think what is unfair is to take the rug from under these people's feet. None of them should put in a call on the radio for fire, for example, and for that not to be answered. We have the ability to support them and we should be doing so in that way. But Biden, he remains resolute. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw. There are so many questions for which we don't yet know the answers. There is a rumour, if you can call it that, that this is a more moderate Taliban than the one that tortured Roe when he was just a boy. More moderate, if you can believe it, than the one that burst into a maternity ward and murdered women and newborn babies. And the Taliban, of course, are keen to cultivate this image too. We are ready to prepare the conditions for the return of women to studies, work and all human activities. But for Roe, this isn't really a question he knows too well the true horror of what's about to be unleashed. That news conference, that's just PR. I have not been able to find a word to express it. Still feel numb, but the, the, the overall emotion has been one of deep anxiety. I'm still kind of scared of touching my phone and uh, you know, getting a message from a friend where there, you know, something's gone wrong. I find it more intense uh, than I used to. Uh, When I was a kid, the Taliban coming over, my overarching concern was the safety of my father. Uh, Now it's it's different, Uh, it's more intense. I understand what's at stake. His dad, who drives a taxi in Wolverhampton, is struggling. He's withdrawn. 
he didn't feel safe enough to talk to me for this podcast. He's gone very much into himself. He doesn't talk much, really, uh, which is understandable. When I first started speaking to Ro, I really did think that I was making a podcast about the past, about how one man's life had woven in and out of such a devastating war that over 20 years had shaped him and had transformed a country. But I was, of course, totally wrong about that. This is actually a story about the future. Ro now works in a bank, but he's an activist and a writer and he works part-time for a think tank. And Ro's son, who was born to him and to Tahira when they met as young refugees, has just turned 13, nearly the same age that Ro was when he was burned with those molten hot spoons. So it's a story about a cycle that's just been reset. After 20 years, hundreds of thousands of troops, billions of dollars, thousands of deaths. Earlier this year, Ro returned to Afghanistan and he took his son with him. I was 12 when I actually fled Afghanistan, so it was kind of a real, uh, you know, he 12 returning to Afghanistan. Unfortunately, we couldn't go back to the village where I came from. So we, we made a trip towards the north of Kabul to uh, you know, the Panjshir Valley, where I just sat in a corner in this beautiful picturesque area where uh, in the late 90s, the Taliban had obliterated the area, destroyed all the vineyards and, and burned all the houses. So I, I was kind of overlooking these beautiful part of the world and the vineyards are back, uh, you know, they're all green and the, the farmers are back and and it just looks so nice. And just to make a point, probably to myself, I'd taken a bottle of red wine from Kabul to that place. I just sat on a rock and you know, drank that bottle of red wine and said, you know, you'll probably never have the opportunity to go to Afghanistan and facing the vineyards, the very vineyards that Taliban torched, and they're green again, and you're having a bottle of red wine, which was actually the, the best wine I'd ever drank. That valley, at the time that I wrote this, was the last area to remain free of the Taliban. It had declared itself a pocket of resistance, a small place of freedom. And for that brief moment, for Roe and his son, it was a place of freedom too, for these sons of Afghanistan. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Matt Russell and Gary Marshall. Sound design was by Carla Patella, with special thanks to Dave Taylor. And there's something that I just want to end this episode on, something about the way that we do our journalism here at Tortoise. We're a membership organisation, which you probably know by now because you've probably heard me say it many times at the end of our podcast, but it means that our members can help shape our journalism, and that's exactly what Roe has done. We met him because he came to a thinking that we held. 
I think in is what we call our open news meetings. And he spoke for a stunning six minutes about his life. And it was clear from listening to him that evening that we needed to tell his story. And so those six minutes turned into the odyssey that you've just heard. Our open news meetings, our thinkings, are the engine of our journalism. And if that sounds interesting to you, then you should join us. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and you can use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. I'll see you next week for a story about a very peculiar conspiracy. Hello, Tortoise listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Paper Cuts is the fast, funny daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half hour package. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app.